Welcome back to our study in this year's Bible Bee through the book of Ruth. We're covering one chapter per study, and for today we have Ruth chapter 3. We will take the time and read the passage, and then uh, I'll give you how we're going to uh, how we're going to break it up and study. So let's read from Ruth three verse one. Now Naomi, or then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, "My daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whom, with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash therefore, and anoint yourself." And put on your cloak and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. And he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight. And in the morning, if he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be, or let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it. And he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city, and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest but we'll settle the matter today. All right, so Ruth chapter 3, we're going to study in three sections. Uh, The first five verses I'm calling, verses 1 through 5, Naomi guides Ruth. Then we'll we'll look at a larger section, verses 6 through 15, Ruth at the feet of Boaz. And then a short final section, verses 16 through 18, Ruth reports to Naomi. All right, so uh, Ruth chapter 3 is really the heart of the book. Everything up until now has been leading to the events that are going to happen in chapter 3, and they all simply describe the whole chapter is just focused on the events of one day, one single day and that night. 
and um, how the Lord's purposes and plans that are that are really the the main concern of the book of Ruth, how they all come together in the events of this one single day. It's a challenging chapter, though. It's a challenging um, portion of Scripture to rightly understand and to apply to our lives because there are some different opinions by different Bible commentators on how to understand what's unfolding here. Uh, Everyone, you know, that loves the Lord and loves the Bible and studies it closely, um, for the most part, in terms of the, the, the biggest concerns of God's Word, there's lots and lots of agreement among the best Bible scholars on all the essentials of the faith. They, they will agree. But on some portions of God's Word, like this portion, where there's no essential of the faith that's in focus here in chapter 3, we have a story and we have meaning that's meant to be attached to that story. There's often some differences of opinion as to, okay, what exactly is this story telling us and what meaning are we meant to draw from it? And with good intentions, uh, good Bible scholars draw different conclusions. For instance, there's one Bible scholar that uh, teaches this chapter, and it's a very good commentary on the book of Ruth overall, but I happen to disagree with his perspective in this chapter. He, he believes that what's happening here as Naomi is giving counsel and direction to Ruth is that Naomi is really uh, giving her the wrong kind of counsel, he, that she's... she's um, acting in an unwise and inappropriate way and directing Ruth to go to the threshing floor to meet Boaz that night. Um, and then there are other Bible commentaries that view what happens between Ruth and Boaz that night at the threshing floor in a way that kind of um, calls into question their actions and whether they handled the situation that night in a way that's appropriate and pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. So I disagree with both of those perspectives. I think uh, there's nothing in the chapter or anywhere else in the book of Ruth that calls into question what direction Naomi gives to Ruth. We see it. it is, I will say this about the, the direction that Naomi gives to Ruth, um, it is bold counsel and it's somewhat socially risky counsel, meaning that Naomi sends Ruth on a mission that um, really is risky in the sense that what she ends up doing completely depends upon the strength of Ruth's character and the strength of Boaz's character. And if either one of them is weak in character and not walking faithfully with the Lord, what Naomi counsels Ruth to do could end up in a in a disastrous circumstance for both of their lives. But, thankfully, uh, by the grace of God, Ruth does have a strong character, and Boaz has an equally strong character, and the events turn out exactly as Naomi had hoped that they would, and ultimately they turn out in a way that serves the Lord's purpose and fulfills his plan for both of their lives. So that's how we're going to tackle it. So our first section, as I said, is the first five verses, Naomi guiding Ruth. And the book opens, or this chapter opens, you remember we had left off at the end of chapter two with with Ruth going and gleaning the field of Boaz, and then Boaz at the end of that day's work, blessing 
Ruth with a, a large amount of grain that she's able to take home to Naomi. And so now their, their immediate problem is resolved. The immediate problem was they needed food just to survive. And um, the Lord has provided that through the generosity of Boaz. We don't know how long of a time period there is between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. The, the chapter simply opens with a connector word, then. So it's sometime later. And uh, we do know this, though, that at the, at the, um, in the circumstances of chapter 2, we were in the harvest time. Now, in the circumstances of chapter 3, we're at the end of the harvest because the grain is about to be threshed. And I'm going to, I'm going to explain what that means in just a moment. But some time has passed between chapter 2 and chapter 3. And as the chapter opens up, it starts with Naomi expressing a concern to Ruth, and her concern is about Ruth, or she's concerned for the future of Ruth. So what's happened is, the Lord has proven his faithfulness to both of them. He's provided food for them in their, in their time of need. But Naomi's thinking not just short term, like, will we have food on the table to eat some dinner tonight? She's also thinking long term. She's thinking about long range plans for both of their lives. And she knows that she's older than Ruth. And eventually, Naomi will likely die before Ruth will die. And she's concerned what's going to happen to Ruth in the future. And so she says this to uh, Ruth at the beginning of the chapter, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Now she had mentioned this concern all the way back in chapter one. Uh, Let me just turn back and reread a verse from chapter one, chapter one, verse nine. And this was back when they were still in Moab And the circumstance at this moment is uh, Naomi's husband has died and both of the husbands of her daughters-in-law have died. And she is with or in a relationship with both of her daughters-in-law. But she instructs both of them to return to their homes, to their parents' homes, remember. And she says this to both daughters-in-law in in verse 9. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. She's intending to send them back home so that they can, in a sense, restart their lives and find a new husband among the men of Moab. And you remember that the one daughter-in-law followed that instruction and she actually went and returned to her parents' home. But the other one, which is Ruth, uh, stayed with Naomi and journeyed with her now all the way back to Bethlehem in Israel. So here in chapter 3, we see that Naomi is still concerned for the same thing for Ruth's future, and that is that she wants to seek rest for her. Now, the word rest here, it's, a, it's an important word. It's a biblical concept, and it's, it's something that is one of the themes that continues all the way through God's word. For instance, when the Lord led the children of Israel out of Egypt, and when he brought them across the Sinai wilderness. All of that effort was in order to eventually bring them to the promised land where they would find in the promised land rest. Same word, same concept. The goal being rest describes a place of security, a place of safety, a place of prosperity, a place where you can settle down and make your home for the rest of your life. 
She, uh, Naomi at this point in the story recognizes that Ruth has, has left her place of rest, which was in Moab, and she is connected now to Naomi permanently. But Naomi is not in a position to be able to provide that level of restful circumstance for Ruth. So she's concerned what's going to happen in Ruth's future. Now, in this circumstance, she understands that Ruth will find rest if she can find for Ruth a godly husband to take the place of the husband that she had lost in Moab, which was, of course, Naomi's son. And so in her concern for her future and in her concern to find a husband for her, she has an idea. And it actually is not here just Naomi having a natural idea, but this is an idea that most likely, as we're reading the story, we don't have this detail in the text, but we're allowed to draw conclusions based upon how the story is told. And most likely what's happening here is the Lord is placing an idea in the mind and heart of Naomi, which is going to lead Naomi to give Ruth a certain kind of direction, certain kind of counsel, certain kind of advice, and that's going to lead the steps of Ruth into the circumstance that this chapter is describing. And we're, because we've read the entire story, we know the end of the story, not just the middle of it and the beginning of it. We know it's going to end in Ruth and Boaz getting married. And so Naomi thinks about Ruth's need, but she also thinks about Boaz in his circumstance. And she considers maybe there would be a good match between Boaz and Ruth in this circumstance where Boaz can provide for Ruth a place of rest, a home, a life of security, safety, and provision, a life where she can settle down and be blessed for the rest of her life. So she mentions this to uh, Ruth, is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were. Now, the the description of with whose young women you were, you remember from the previous chapter where she went to glean the field that uh, Ruth stayed with in the field the group of young women that would come behind the reapers and then they would gather the stalks of grain into bundles. So she had worked with those young women. She's reminding Uh, Ruth of that circumstance, but she's connecting it to the man that owned the field, who is Boaz. And when she says, is not Boaz our relative? Naomi's not asking Ruth a question like, is he our relative? I don't really know. I'm not sure. She knows that, that Boaz is related to her. And she knows that now because of Ruth's connection to Boaz, Ruth has a connection to Boaz as well. And the word for relative here, it's in our translation, uh, the ESV that I'm teaching from, um, it, it, it just refers to someone that has some kind of a family connection. But in the Hebrew, the word that's used is translated by the idea of a kinsman. And it refers to, remember we had talked about extended family, someone who is within the family circle, but not the immediate family. So it's not a brother or a father or even an uncle. It's someone who is in a a further extended family connection. Now, in that mention 
of Boaz being our kinsman. Naomi mentions Boaz in that perspective on purpose, and she is thinking of something that's super important and was well understood by the people of that day within that culture and had probably already been described to Ruth at this point by Naomi herself. And that is what we understand to be the law of the kinsman redeemer. Now that law, which I'm going to give you some some Bible references to where you can find that law, uh, that law was a part of the culture of Israel in those days. It's no longer part of our culture today. But it's part of the Hebrew culture in those days because God ordained for it to be part of their culture. He commanded it to be part of their culture. Now, I'm going to give you three passages. We won't take the time to go and turn to them and read them. I will. The first two I'll explain to you uh, what part of the law is in focus. And then the third one from the New Testament, um, we'll actually turn and read that one. So the first passage where we learn about the law of the kinsman redeemer is from the book of Leviticus. It's a a large section. It's Leviticus chapter 25, verses 23 to 55. And this, it's really a set of laws that are described in Leviticus 25 there. They had to do with the obligation of a kinsman to redeem a near relative's property in a circumstance where that property could be lost to that family. It required someone in a family relationship to, in a sense, step up and take responsibility to help a near kinsman in their time of need by redeeming their property. In a sense, purchasing their property for them. Now, in the second passage... Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 5 through 10, the other part of the kinsman redeemer law is in focus, and that had to do, and that portion describes redeeming a near relative's widow. So the circumstance there is if one of the women of Israel loses her husband, he dies, then if she was young enough to remarry, then a near relative in the family circle would be responsible to then marry her and to provide a child for her, and then that child would be raised in the name of the dead relative's family so that the family could continue in Israel and have its continuing history. So in this circumstance, what Naomi is thinking about is she's thinking about both parts of this law of the kinsman redeemer. So her husband, and we'll find this out later in the next chapter, this will be highlighted in chapter four. This is just a little bit before we get there. But what's going to happen is Boaz is going to purchase a field that legally belongs to Naomi and It legally belongs to Naomi because her husband, Elimelech, had owned that field, that farm. And Boaz is going to redeem that field, that property, and he's going to provide financially for Naomi in that purchase. Also, 
What's going to happen, of course, is that Boaz is going to end up marrying Ruth, which will redeem her as a widow in Israel. And then they're going to raise a family which will keep alive the family line that her husband, who had died, uh, left unredeemed because they had never had children. Her husband that had died in Moab and Ruth had never had children before he died. And so Boaz is going to step in and provide that blessing by marrying her. So here, when Naomi, at this first part of the story, when she says to Ruth, is not Boaz a redeemer to us? Is he not a kinsman to us? What she is thinking of are this, this two sections of God's law, and she is considering that Boaz could be the one that the Lord will provide in order to fulfill the concerns of these laws that God has provided for his people. Now, I mentioned there's a third portion that I want us to look at, and we would read that one. If you will, turn over into the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22. We're just going to read a single verse, but the context here is this is a discussion it's taking place, really a confrontation that's taking place between Jesus and a group of Sadducees. Now, there were in the days of Jesus, there were different groups of religious leaders in the city of Jerusalem. Uh, the most famous group, you know, is the Pharisees, but the second most famous and well-known were the Sadducees. And one of the things about the Sadducees is they had a, a wrong understanding of one important event in God's purposes, which is they did not believe in a future resurrection of the body. They believed, like many people do today, and the people that believe this today are just as mistaken as the Sadducees were, they believed that this life is all that there is, that we have a physical body that God gives to us, and we live our lives in this physical body, and then when this body dies, that's the end of our existence, and there is no There is no resurrection of the dead and no future life after that. And so Jesus was in an interaction with them, a conversation with them, and they're really trying to challenge Jesus in this portion. They're trying to prove their point, and they're trying to catch him in a misunderstanding of the scriptures. Now, of course, if we were to read the whole section, we'd find out that that Jesus answers their question in a way that that reveals how ignorant they really are of the principles of God's word. But the verse that we're going to look at is just a single verse, verse 24, where the Sadducees here are speaking to Jesus, and they say this, Teacher, Moses said, so this is referring to the laws of Moses, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. So we see that this was an ancient commandment going all the way back to the days of Moses, but hundreds of years later, it was still very much in the awareness of the people of Israel, and so much so that in the days of Jesus, which is hundreds of years after Moses, uh, there's still a discussion about this principle that is derived from an understanding of God's commandment to Israel through Moses. All right, so let's head back to Ruth, and we'll continue our study. So the main point of me going into all that background and all that detail is to just make you aware of what Naomi is thinking about 
when she refers to Boaz as, is not Boaz our kinsman? Is he not a near relative? And the implication is that, therefore, he would be accountable to step up and function or act as a redeemer for you, Ruth, in your circumstance of being a relative, and for me, in my circumstance of owning this field, and he would be available to purchase it. Now, that law, in both of those portions, in Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, was a very practical and needed provision of the Lord for a group of people that were in greatest need in Israel. Those that had been widowed, and those who were therefore in a place of of true need in their life. So the Lord was graciously providing for his people. But the law of the kinsman redeemer, and this is really the main point of the book of Ruth, the law of the kinsman redeemer also served a very important spiritual purpose. It served a symbolic purpose. And what we're going to see is the law of the kinsman redeemer was pointing at a saving event, and it was pointing in two directions at the same time. It was pointing back in history to something that had happened before this time, and it was pointing forward in history to something that had not yet happened. So in what sense is the law of the kinsman redeemer pointing backwards in time? Uh, turn with me, if you would, back to the book of Exodus for a moment. And we're going to read just one verse from Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6. Now this is the Lord speaking to Moses in terms of what he wants Moses to communicate to the Israelites. The Lord speaks in verse 6, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. Here the Lord is declaring to Moses to bring a message to the Israelites And as Moses was to bring that message, the present circumstance, as the Lord is speaking, the present circumstance of the Israelites was one of slavery. They were enslaved to Pharaoh in the land of Egypt, and they were not free to leave. They were not free to live their lives in the way that they chose, and they were not free even to live their lives in the way that the Lord wanted them to live their lives. And so the Lord's intention was to save them from their circumstance, and to deliver them out of Egypt to eventually cause them to travel through the wilderness and reach the promised land. But as the Lord is summarizing all of what his actions will mean if he delivers the children of Israel from Egypt and brings them to the promised land, he uses one key word to describe his actions in verse 6. And that one key word is redeem. I will redeem them. Now, this is the second of our two key words that are the main theme of the book of Ruth. The main theme of the book of Ruth is the actions of a kinsman, a near relative, who will act as a redeemer. So the 
law of the kinsman redeemer points backward in history to the Exodus to show that whenever a kinsman redeemer steps up to redeem the circumstances of a widow in Israel, he is representing the Lord's saving work in their lives. And it's similar to how the Lord saved his people from their distress in Egypt. But it's not just the law of the kinsman redeemer. It's not just pointing backwards in history. It's also pointing forward in history. And this pointing forward to history is a symbolic pointing to Christ and the work that he will accomplish when he enters the world hundreds of years from the time of the story that we're reading. And it's pointing to how Christ will act when he comes in the saving and redeeming plan of God as our kinsman redeemer. Now, in order to understand exactly how Christ is going to be our kinsman redeemer, we have to understand what the requirements were of the kinsman redeemer. And these requirements are described. We won't, again, take the time to go back and read the passages But they are described both in the Leviticus passage I gave you and the Deuteronomy passage I gave you. There were four main requirements to qualify as a God-ordained kinsman redeemer. Four qualifications. Number one, the kinsman redeemer must be the nearest male relative or the nearest kinsman to the person in need that they would be redeeming. Number two, the kinsman redeemer must be able to perform all the obligations of redemption. In other words, we're going to see in chapter four, we're not quite there in Ruth yet, we're going to see that Boaz is going to step up and he is going to perform the obligations of the kinsman redeemer. And we're going to see that there's another available redeemer in the family But he's not able to fulfill those obligations, and so he's not qualified to be the kinsman redeemer. Only Boaz is qualified. Third, the kinsman redeemer must be not only able to perform the obligations, he must be willing. It's got to be in his heart. He has to want to redeem the widow that is in need. And then the fourth qualifications... And this is the obvious one. He must then, with that ability to redeem and with that willingness to redeem, he must actually fulfill his obligations and redeem her. Now, all of this points forward to Christ in a very important way. Each one of these four qualifications reveals something about how only Jesus could actually save us in our need. Only Jesus qualifies as Redeemer. First, Jesus is the nearest male relative to us. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that Jesus was born to our immediate family, but it does mean this, that in order to redeem us, Jesus had to become like us and connected to us. And this is why Jesus became a human being He became a human being in order to save us. He was God the Son in heaven. And were it not for the requirements of redemption, he could have saved us from heaven without ever leaving heaven. 
But he had to come, incarnate, be born as a human being in order to become our near kinsman, become a human being like us. Second, the ability to perform the obligations. Was Jesus able to redeem? And the answer to that is, not only was Jesus able, he's the only person in all of history that's able to redeem. Why? Because in the requirements of being the redeemer in terms of salvation, the the requirement was that the person that redeems would have to have lived a perfect and sinless life. Otherwise, he's not qualified to redeem anyone besides himself, and even himself he would not be qualified to redeem. So in order to, to save me, and in order to save you, Jesus had to have lived a sinless and perfect life, and that's exactly what he did. And that's what uniquely qualifies him to be the only redeemer in all of history. There is no other human being before Jesus and no other human being since Jesus. I don't care. You can make a list of all of the great human beings that have lived in all of history. Every single one of them has sinned with the one exception being Jesus himself. And so he is the only one truly qualified to redeem. Third, he has to be willing to redeem us. So it's one thing if God had a plan, God the Father had a plan to save us, but was the Son willing to go through all that was required in order to redeem us? He had to be willing to get up off of the throne of God in heaven. He had to be willing to lay aside his glory. He had to be willing to be born as a human being. He had to be willing to endure all of the difficulties that come with living in a fallen and sinful world. He had to be willing to then pay the ultimate price that was necessary to accomplish our redemption, which is his sacrifice on the cross. And so the best passage I could give you to connect in your notes is from Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. You can read the whole passage in your own time, but there are two key words in that passage that identify that when Jesus did what was necessary in order to redeem us, it's Because he offered himself for our redemption. God didn't force him to do so. He willingly offered himself in order to save us. And then the fourth and final qualification for being a kinsman redeemer is that the redeemer has to actually then step up and fulfill all of the obligations. And Jesus certainly did that in the passage. I'll link to that. And I'll read these two verses for us. This is from 1 Peter, and we'll read from chapter 1, and I'll read verses 18 and 19. Knowing that you were ransomed, and the word there could also be translated redeemed, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So he actually fulfilled the cost of redemption. He paid the price, just like we're going to see in chapter 4, that Boaz will actually redeem Ruth and also Naomi by opening up his purse and 
at great personal financial cost to himself, Boaz is going to pay the high price of redeeming these widows in need. And in the same way, Jesus is going to pay an even higher price, not just a price, as Peter says, of silver and gold, but a price of the cost of his own precious blood. He is going to offer himself in death as a sacrifice for our sins and so fulfill all of the obligations of the kinsman redeemer. So in that, what we're meant to understand is that in the story, Boaz really represents Christ. And Ruth really represents the redeemed. And we call the redeemed the church, the people that truly belong to the Lord because the Lord has redeemed them. All right, so back in Ruth chapter 3, we're still finishing up these first five verses. Naomi has got this idea now in her mind, and I believe the Lord placed it there in her mind. Naomi has this idea in her mind that she is going to send Ruth to connect with Boaz with the hope and the intention that Boaz will choose to marry Ruth and redeem her and therefore be a blessing and provide for both Ruth and Naomi for the rest of their lives. So Naomi has a plan in how that's going to unfold and how that's going to happen. And so she gives guidance to Ruth, really gives her clear direction, gives her what we could call counsel. Now, what Naomi identifies is, here's my plan, Ruth. Uh, I know where Boaz is going to be tonight. He's going to be at the threshing floor. And um, what I want you to do is I want you to go and meet Boaz at that location tonight. But she knows uh, Naomi is wise and she knows there's a right way to handle this possibility and there's a wrong way to handle this possibility. So she gives her some practical counsel and she gives her some some, uh, wise advice in terms of how to go about doing it. The first thing she suggests to Ruth to do is, I want you, before you go tonight, I want you to wash, and I want you to anoint yourself, and I want you to put on your cloak. All right, so on a practical level, we could see this as nothing more than advice of, uh, I want you to make a good impression tonight. You know, like if someone were to... uh, knowing that they, they had a desire to possibly be married to someone and they were going to meet them, uh, you would certainly want them to put a good impression on. So, you know, get cleaned up. Uh, you know, Ruth has been working hard each day in the field. She's been gleaning uh, the fields at night. And in those circumstances of those days, it wasn't practical and and there certainly wasn't the facility to come home from work each night and take a hot bath or to take a shower like you might every day Uh, but on special occasions they certainly would wash in that way and she also suggests that she anoints herself Uh, the anointing here would be similar to like uh, get yourself cleaned up and put on some perfume Uh, the anointing was an oil but it was a um, it was a uh, kind of a, uh, a scented oil 
where they would add different spices to the oil in order to make a very pleasing smell. You can connect for your notes if you want to the scented oil, the Song of Solomon chapter 1 verse 3 which describes the common use in those days of scented oils, anointing oils. And then the cloak would just be her best dress, in a sense. An outer garment which would present her in the best possible light. So it could be just as simple as, this portion could be just as simple as Naomi saying, I want you to make a good impression, so I want you to be cleaned up, I want you to smell good, and I want you to look nice. But likely there's an, an, an additional element that's being described here, even though it's not mentioned specifically. And that is, we have to remember that Ruth was a widow. And it was appropriate in those days, in that culture, for widows to have a period of time after their husbands had passed, if their husbands died before them, a period of time where they would mourn their departed husbands. And during the time of a widow's mourning, she would not be, if she was young and eligible to be remarried, a a godly man would not approach her for starting a relationship during her time of mourning. But then there would come a period of time after the mourning had ended where that young widow would appropriately signal to the community, my time of mourning has ended and I'm now available to consider being remarried. So it's entirely possible and I think it's likely that Naomi is wanting Ruth to, in the way that she prepares herself to go to the threshing floor that night, she would send the signal that my time of mourning is at an end and I am now available and eligible for the possibility of being remarried. So then Naomi sends Ruth to the threshing floor to meet Boaz. Now, why the threshing floor? It's at the end of harvest. During the harvest, all the work was done in the fields where the grain was actually growing. Remember, the reapers, the young men would go through the field and with cutting implements, they would would cut the grain. And then the young women would come behind the reapers and they would gather the, the stalks of grain into bundles and tie them up into bundles. And then at the end of the harvest time, the actual work of cutting and bundling the grain, those bundles would be carried to a different location in town, and that location would be what was called a threshing floor. The threshing floor was basically, it could be a a hard, compacted earth, dirt, or it could be like a you know, like a stone floor, but it was a place where they would lay all the bundles out on the ground, and then they would use various methods to actually beat the grain. And the reason they're beating the grain is, the grain grows in these long stalks, and the grains are just these little grains that are kind of held in these stalks. So they would beat the grain in order to separate, kind of loosen the grain from the stalk so that the grain would fall to the ground and then the stalks would, would be there uh, laying next to the grain. And then after threshing, the threshing was the beating portion, there would come the winnowing. The winnowing is where they would take what we would call like a, a pitchfork and they would, they would use this pitchfork to take the entire a mixture of both the stalks and the grain and throw it directly up in the air. And the reason they would throw it in the air is the breeze that would come at night would then blow the, the lighter stalks away from the pile and the heavier grains 
of whatever they were growing, in this case it's barley, would fall to the ground in a pile. And then later they would come along and the stalks that had been blown to the side, they called the chaff. They would gather that into, into piles and some of it they would feed to their animals and some of it they would use for fuel for their fires. And the grain, which was left in a pile, they would then gather up. And that's, of course, uh, the whole reason for the crop. That's the whole reason for the harvest. They would eat that and sell some of it. And that's how they would make their living. So Naomi knows that this is the end of the harvest. This is Boaz's field. It's his harvest. He's going to be there at the threshing floor. Whether he's doing the work himself or overseeing the workers, he is going to be on site at the threshing floor because this is the highlight of what the, the whole year's crop is has been aiming toward. So she tells her, go to the threshing floor. Boaz is going to be there, but she gives her a, a very she gives Ruth a very special instruction. She says, I don't want you to just walk in and announce your presence or make yourself known to Boaz. In other words, go to the threshing floor, but kind of hang out in the background and make sure that he doesn't see you or know that you're there yet. And she was to wait until the end of the work that night. And at the end of the work that night, what would happen is they would have a meal and Boaz would eat food. He would have his drinks for the night and then he would lie down and go to sleep at the end of his long day's work. But he would be as... Naomi describes it, he would be merry. And what she means by that is what we would call, he'd be in a good mood. The reason he'd be in a good mood, he's, he's just reached the harvest, which is the whole goal of his financial year. Plus, he's got a full stomach from his meal, and he's going to be in a good, happy mood, and then he's going to lay down and have a good, deep, restful night's sleep that night. So I want you to wait until the end of the workday, I want you to wait until he's had his meal. I want you to wait until he lies down. And then I've got a very special instruction. You're going to have to pay close attention to this. And that is, you need to watch and see where he lays down for the night. Why? Because she's instructing Ruth to go and approach him and him alone. There were other men there. It's really important. She doesn't want Ruth just wandering around the threshing floor and picking the wrong man that night. She wants her to see exactly where Boaz is lying down. So when he lies down, and the implication is, wait until he falls asleep. Then here's what you're going to do. Now, her counsel at this point is the part in particular that some Bible teachers, some Bible scholars have a problem with because it seems a little bit too risky until in terms of what she's she's advising and counseling Ruth to do. And I agree that it is risky counsel, but it's only risky if Ruth has a poor character or Boaz has a poor character. If either one of them is not a good person in their heart and not really committed to the Lord and his ways, this could be a problem because it's going to happen in the middle of the night. But if Ruth has a strong character, which we see all the way through the story that she does, if, Booth, if, if Boaz has a strong character and we see all through the story that he does, then this has the real potential to turn out exactly the way Naomi is hoping that it will. And of course, again, we know the end of the story from 
from the beginning, and that is, it is going to turn out exactly as she hoped. So she tells Ruth, when he lies down and when he falls asleep, I want you to pick a moment during the night, and I want you to then approach where Boaz is sleeping. And when you get there, what you're going to do is you're going to uncover his feet, which to us sounds kind of like strange advice, right? What's happening is we see that Boaz lays down on some of the stalks. He, he lays down on a heap of grain, kind of like it's a, a more comfortable place to sleep for the night. And uh, the men would take with them, because they're not sleeping at home, this is like camping out, they would take with them an outer cloak, which was useful if it was raining or it was useful if it was cold. But at night, they, that outer cloak would become their blanket. And so he had covered himself with his outer cloak, and Ruth is to come along and just very carefully not rip the whole cloak off of Boaz and say, hey, surprise, here I am. She's to just uncover his feet and only his feet, and then she's supposed to lay down. Now, in what, in what relationship is she supposed to lay down? So if this hand is, is Boaz lying down, this is his feet. She's going to uncover his feet, and then she's going to lay down perpendicular to him at his feet, not quite touching him. And then what's going to happen is she's going to then recover his feet once she lays down. And where she recovers her feet, his feet, his cloak is going to partially cover her just like it covers him. So in a sense, what's going to be happening is she's going to be sharing his blanket that night, but in a very appropriate way, meaning she's not going to be laying down next to him. She's not going to be crossing any lines of what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Because remember, Boaz and Ruth, at this point in the story, they will be later, but at this point in the story, they're not married. So, that's the risky part of Naomi's counsel. Now, uh, at this point, her counsel is going to accomplish this. If everything works out the way she's hoping it will be, um, it's going to show to Boaz when he eventually he's going to wake up. And eventually he's going to discover that Ruth is laying at his feet. What, what conclusion is he going to draw from this circumstance that he didn't plan and he wasn't expecting? It's going to send a very clear and strong signal to Boaz. What is the signal it's going to send? It's going to tell Boaz that Ruth is interested in him and is available for marriage. But it's going to be telling him this through symbolism. The laying at his feet and her covering herself with the blanket that he is using to cover himself that night. Because the covering of the blanket is a marriage symbol in that society and in that culture. But it's going to be done in public and it's going to be done in such a way that she is not lying at his side, which is not appropriate yet. She's going to be lying at his feet just signaling her availability and signaling, in a sense, her submissiveness to the circumstance of needing him to be willing to step up as her kinsman redeem her. It's a position of humility 
for her to lay at his feet in that way. Now at this point, Naomi's given all of her counsel to Ruth, and Ruth has two options. And this is really important for you young ones, especially at this point in your life and at this early point in your relationship to the Lord. How many of you young ones know everything there is to know about life already? How many of you young ones know everything you can possibly know about life already? How many of you know everything you should know about the ways of the Lord? How many of you know everything that should be known about how to walk in your life path that's ahead of you in a way that's both pleasing the Lord and fulfilling the Lord's purpose for your life? And the answer is, as young ones, we don't know a lot that we later will come to know. And so it's super important when we're young in life to have access, if the Lord will provide it, to what we call godly counselors. Those that are more mature than we are, those that have learned more than we've learned, more, those that understand more than we understand, that know more than we know, and that they would be willing to offer advice, direction, and counsel to us. But when they do, like Naomi has done for Ruth, we have two choices. And they're really, at that point, only two choices. But you're in a position when someone that's older, wiser, and spiritually more mature than you offers you godly counsel, like Naomi has done for Ruth. Your two choices are, I will follow your counsel, or I will disregard your counsel. What does Ruth choose in this circumstance? She chooses to follow the counsel that Naomi gives her, and she says these words, All that you say, I will do. And in that, we see revealed once again the wonderful heart that the Lord has given to Ruth. She's wise beyond her years. She doesn't know everything that Naomi knows, but she knows enough to trust Naomi as a godly counselor and influence in her life. And here's what's going to happen from this point in the story forward. And it only happens because Ruth says these words, all that you say I will do. She follows her counsel, and because she follows godly counsel that the Lord has provided for her through Naomi, her life, Ruth's life, is going to change for the better for the rest of her life. Her life will be so much better because she's followed godly counsel than it would be had she just decided, yeah, yeah, that's an interesting idea that you've got there, Naomi, but I'm going to just handle things my own way. She submits and follows the direction, and the Lord blesses her by following that direction, and her life is about to change for the better forever. And interestingly, not only is Ruth's life going to be blessed because she follows Naomi's counsel, Naomi's life as the counselor is also going to be blessed because she's given right counsel and Ruth has accepted it and followed right counsel. Now, um, there are times when godly counselors will offer you counsel and you will be tempted to just decide for yourself, nah, I'm I'm not going to listen to that. I'm just going to do what I want to do. And I will just tell you, based upon this passage and many others in God's word, when you disregard godly counsel, it's always going to end up worse for you. 
Uh, there's always going to be consequences when you disregard God's wisdom and God's direction that he provides for you through those that you should trust to give direction to your life. All right, our next section then, verses 6 through 15. We, we start this section with Ruth following the instructions of Naomi. Um, she hears the counsel that Naomi gives her. She receives it in her heart. She acknowledges, this is, this is wise, this is good. But what's even more important is she goes and follows the counsel. She actually puts it into practice. Now, I've been counseling people as a pastor. I've been involved in, in lots and lots of counseling moments over the last 32 years of ministry. And um, my worst experiences have been as a counselor when I've given good and godly and wise advice from God's word to the people that are seeking it. And they'll sit in front of me at times and nod their head and say, you're right, that's wise, that's good, that's exactly what I should do. And they go and they close the door to my office and leave and go about their lives and completely ignore and disregard what they recognized as wise counsel, even acknowledged it was wise counsel, and end up just doing what they wanted to do anyway later. And why is that? Why do people end up doing sometimes what they want to do later, even though they know that God's advice, God's counsel would take them in a different direction? It's because God's way is always going to cost you something. God's way is, is usually more difficult and more challenging than doing things your own way. It ends up better. It ends up more fruitful. It ends up more blessed. But it's harder to go from point A to point B following God's advice than it would be to just do what you want. What we see here from Ruth is that she, she, she hears the counsel, she acknowledges it as good, but she goes through and follows it through and doesn't disregard any of the counsel of Naomi. So in the story, it unfolds exactly as Naomi had anticipated. Um, Ruth makes it to the threshing floor. She stays in the background. She doesn't let it be known that she's there. Uh, Boaz finishes his work. He eats his, his meal. He, he drinks his drinks and he lays down for the night on a heap of grain and he's in a good mood as he goes to sleep. Later that night, now most likely he had gone to sleep what we would call pretty early in the evening. There's no electric lights He's, you know, it's like when you go out camping, you, you end up going to sleep earlier than you normally do when you're at home. Um, Boaz probably had gone to sleep pretty early in the evening. We don't know what time. Might have been 8 o'clock at night. But now it's midnight has rolled around. It's deep in the middle of the night. And just before midnight, uh, Ruth had quietly gone to Boaz, meaning that she did what Naomi told her to do. Take note of where he lies down so that you'll be able to, to go to that exact spot later tonight. And so she quietly went to Boaz. She uncovered his feet. He, she lay down as he was sleeping. He wasn't aware that she was there. And most likely she had gone to sleep herself then, laying at his feet. And then at midnight, we're told that Boaz was suddenly startled awake. What startled him? We don't know exactly. Most likely... He might have stretched out one of his feet and, and suddenly there's someone laying there at his feet and he made some kind of contact with her. Maybe his big toe touched her shoulder or something like that. 
but it was enough to wake him up, startle him. He wasn't expecting it. He didn't, when he laid down, he wasn't physically close to anyone. And now there's someone right there at his feet. And so when he wakes up, he asks the appropriate question, which is, who are you? And Ruth boldly answers, and most likely they're not talking in loud voices because apparently no one else that was there uh, woke up on the threshing floor. It's just the two of them having a brief conversation here. He asks her, who are you? She answers, I'm Ruth. I'm Ruth, your servant. But what I want you to notice, and look specifically at verse 8, if you've got your Bible open, chapter 3, verse 8, I want you to notice how this scene is described. And what we're looking at here is how the person that writes the book of Ruth, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, how he tells the story. Because there's an interesting detail here in how he tells the story that it would be super easy to just read through the story and miss this. Look in verse 8. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. So how are Boaz and Ruth described in verse 8? They're not named. They're simply described. How are they described? The man and a woman. Now, that could be just a simple description, or it could be theologically and spiritually purposeful. And I believe it's theologically and spiritually purposeful. So, if you have your Bibles, turn with me for just a moment back to the story of the first man and woman in Genesis chapter 2. Many times in God's Word, there are these hidden connections to other portions of God's Word. Hidden in the sense that Not that God doesn't want us to find these connections, but a casual reader will read right past them and not see these connections. So Genesis chapter 2, and I'm going to read just a single verse, and this is the story, of course, of Adam and Eve. We're going to read verse 22. And this is the point at which the Lord is going to make Eve. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, neither of these two key characters is named in Genesis chapter 2 at this point in the story, but they are described. And how are they described? They're described as the man and a woman. Going back then to Ruth chapter 8, or excuse me, Ruth chapter 3, verse 8. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. I think there is an intentional line that's being drawn by the writer of the book of Ruth from this night and this event all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Why would he be drawing a line between Boaz and Ruth and Adam and Eve? The point is that when Adam and Eve's story started, the Lord was right there in the midst of that circumstance. He was bringing these two together because he was starting history as we know it with the story of Adam and Eve. And now what we see, even though it's just a simple description in verse 8, what we see happening is the Lord God is in the midst of this circumstance that's happening between Boaz and Ruth, and the Lord is the one that's bringing the two of them together, just like he brought Adam and Eve together, And by bringing these two together, he's starting a new history. The story 
that started in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve is continuing, but a new chapter is starting here. Because this new chapter is going to lead directly to King David, who is one of the most important characters of all of Old Testament history. And then beyond King David, this story of Ruth and Boaz coming together is going to lead directly to the entrance of the Lord Jesus into this world. Because they are his great, 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 great grandparents. And so God is starting a new chapter of the story of redemptive history by bringing these two together that night. Now, um, Ruth answers his question, who are you? She says, I am Ruth, your servant, again displaying her her humility uh, in the circumstance. And then at this point, Ruth makes what I'm going to call a bold declaration. And it's really... It's really a request. She is going to ask Boaz to do something special for her, show her a special favor by embracing a new relationship with her. She says to Boaz, spread your wings over your servant for you are a redeemer. Now there's two parts of this. One is the specific request. The request is spread your wings over your servant. So the first thing we need to just stop and make sure you all understand. I hope you don't misunderstand it, but I want to make sure you don't. Did Boaz have wings? Was he some kind of strange bird man? No. Boaz did not actually have wings. So why in the world would she say spread your wings over me if you don't have wings? It's what we call poetry. And there's lots and lots of poetry in God's book. God sometimes speaks in very direct ways, but sometimes he speaks using special poetic images which are symbolic in nature. Things that, that describe real events and real relationships and real circumstances, but kind of brings a new perspective to our understanding of what's actually happening here. And in this, we can link what her request is to spread his wings over her. We can link uh, Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8, in which the Lord describes himself as being the one to cover Israel in a covenant marriage relationship by covering Israel with a portion of his or a corner of his garment. It's very similar to the spreading of the wings concept. The idea here of the spreading of the wings is essentially her asking him to consider marrying her. This is a marriage proposal, but not in the sense of she's in charge of this relationship going this direction, but in the sense of her boldly letting Boaz know, I am available to marry I am interested in being married, and I would accept it if you were to be the one to ask me to marry you. That's the boldness of her request. And then the the reason that she gives for her request, and this explains to Boaz why she's saying this to him rather than any other of the men that are there at the threshing floor that night, is you are a redeemer. She is referring to 
the law of the kinsman redeemer that apparently Naomi has explained to her from the laws of Moses. And she is letting Boaz know that Naomi knows that you're a redeemer. I now know that you're a redeemer. You know God's law. You know that you're in the position of a redeemer. So that's why I'm coming to you rather than to any of the other young men in town. I'm coming to you because God's law requires me to approach you. But I accept that. I embrace that. And I am ready for that to happen in our relationship and in our connection. Now, how does Boaz respond? He gives to Ruth a clear and wise answer to her request. First, he says, may you be blessed by the Lord. Meaning he saw her actions that night as righteous, as pleasing to the Lord. He didn't apparently, and he's a godly man, he didn't see her actions in uncovering his feet and laying down at his feet as inappropriate or crossing the line. He saw that she handled things boldly, courageously, but also appropriately and wisely. And so he blesses her in the name of the Lord. He was impressed by her courage and her wisdom. And because he pronounces the Lord's blessing on her, it tells us that Boaz is aware of the Lord's hand in all of this. The Lord is involved, and Boaz sees the Lord's involvement now. And then he says to her, the last kindness that you've shown in this, approaching me the way you have tonight, the last kindness is greater than the first. Now, we have, to, we have to kind of remember the rest of the story of Ruth to understand what he's saying here. The first kindness was when Naomi was widowed in Moab, Ruth refused to leave her. She stayed with her. She journeyed with her all the way from Moab back to Bethlehem. And she's remained with her and she's been providing food for Naomi. That's the first kindness that apparently Boaz has been paying close attention to. He's been observing this godly woman's character and action, and he sees that as a great kindness that Ruth has shown to Naomi. But now, what she's done that night, he sees as an even greater expression of the kindness of her heart. And he connects it to this. He says, you have not gone after Young men, whether rich or poor. So we know this, that Ruth was younger than Boaz. We don't know exactly how many years older he was than her, but they were in, they were in different categories in the eyes of the society. Boaz would be an older man, and Ruth was still a younger widow, and she was eligible for remarriage. And so the natural tendency would be for her to seek out, if she was seeking a husband, to seek out one of the younger men in town. But she doesn't do that. She approaches Boaz and she approaches Boaz because of his role in the family as an eligible kinsman redeemer and because Naomi has counseled her to go that direction. And so Boaz recognizes the wisdom, her commitment to the the word of the Lord, her commitment to the laws of God, and her willingness to sacrifice her own natural preference for God's plan and purpose for her life. Natural preference doesn't mean that Ruth had no interest in Boaz. It just means that naturally the expectation would be that she would tend to gravitate toward one of the young men that would be closer to her own age. 
whether it would be because they had money to provide for her or whether just she was attracted to them and was interested in being their husband. And so Boaz sees this as another expression of her godly character. He then tells her, do not fear, I will do for you all that you ask. In this, this is Boaz's response to her proposition of marriage. He says, I will marry you. That's essentially what he just has told her. But he also adds, I'm aware that you have a really strong reputation in the town. Now, you've been here for a period of time. You've been here through the whole gleaning of the harvest. Uh, You've been hardworking. People have noticed that. People are aware of how kind you've been toward Naomi. Uh, You're a good woman and I certainly would want to marry you from that perspective of you being a worthy woman. Uh, It just tells us in terms of, you know, all of you younger ones at some point will grow up and you're going to reach a marriageable age. And when the time comes for you to marry, you'll have to decide, who am I going to marry? There's one key word from this passage that should give you advice from God's perspective that should rule over all of the options that you have in front of you. Because there's a whole world full of people that you could possibly marry. Who should you, how should you narrow narrow down that list of possibilities? Boaz said, I know that you are a worthy woman. You're a worthy choice. And that just simply means she has a reputation as a godly young woman. And that mattered more to Boaz than all other considerations, just like what mattered more to Ruth than all other considerations was that God had placed Boaz in her life as a kinsman redeemer. Now, Boaz says, it is true. What you've said about me is true. I am a redeemer, meaning I'm qualified to redeem you and to redeem Naomi as a kinsman redeemer. He acknowledged that the laws, both in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, would apply in this situation, and that he was qualified, and that he was willing, and that he was able to actually fulfill the obligations of the kinsman redeemer. But there's just one complication that Boaz was aware of, and Ruth did not know about yet. That one complication is, he says, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Meaning in the family relationships, there was one man in the town of Bethlehem that was closer in relationship to Elimelech, who was the husband of Naomi who had died. There was one man closer than he was to both Naomi and to Ruth. And so in the way that the law was meant to be followed and fulfilled, the first in line was considered first. And then the second in line would be considered second only if the first in line chose not to fulfill his obligation. The first in line was not required to fulfill his obligation, but he had the option and the opportunity to fulfill that obligation. So Boaz knows, I'm not first in line. I'm ready to marry you. I'm willing to marry you. I'm able to marry you. You're a worthy woman. This would be a blessing to marry you, but I can't commit to marry you because I'm not first in line. There's one other that has to be approached first and given the opportunity. And so he says, if 
he che- I'm going to approach him. And he, he commits, I'm going to do this tomorrow. I'm going to get right on top of this thing and I'm going to take care of this thing tomorrow. When I approach him and describe the opportunity he has to redeem Naomi's property and to redeem you as a widow and marry you, when I describe that to him, if he chooses to redeem you, then that's good. And the Lord will have provided for you and the Lord will have blessed you in that, in that result. And I will back out of the situation at that point. And I'll be blessed to know that you're provided for and you're blessed. This is Boaz showing that he's trusting the Lord in this circumstance. If the Lord is bringing this together, then it's going to happen because the Lord is in it. But if the Lord has another purpose and another plan, the last thing Boaz wants to do is trample on the Lord's laws and the Lord's plans by just saying, oh, you want to marry me? Great. Then I'm just going to do whatever I need to do to marry you. Let's get married right now. Um, He is willing to wait and see how the story will unfold with the Lord in charge of the whole situation. So he makes to Ruth that night before she leaves what I'm going to call a conditional marriage proposal. He says, I will marry you if the nearer kinsman redeemer chooses not to redeem you tomorrow. And I will take care of that and then we'll see where this relationship goes. And then at this point, Boaz instructs her to lie down until morning, lie down uh, most certainly in the same place that she was previously laying. And um, so they both go back to sleep and then Early the next morning, Ruth rises up to leave while it's still dark. And the, the text tells us, as the, as the story unfolds, she does that when it's still dark enough not to be recognized by the other people. Now, is she hiding because they've done something wrong? The answer is no. Neither have done anything wrong. Neither have done anything inappropriate. But other people don't know that they haven't done anything wrong. And other people don't know that they haven't done anything inappropriate. And so she leaves while it's still dark so that she doesn't raise questions in the minds of other people. Like, what was that woman, Ruth, that Moabitish woman doing laying down right next to Boaz? Wow, that's really, that's really inappropriate. They probably were, you know, doing things that they shouldn't have been doing together late at night in the dark. And so she avoids all of those questions, all of that possible gossip by wisely getting up while it's still dark and leaving. But just before she leaves, Boaz calls her over and he makes a provision for her like he had blessed her with a large amount of grain during the gleaning in chapter 2. He now blesses her one more time and he measures out six measures of barley for her to carry in her outer cloak, her outer garment back to town, back to Naomi. And it says that the six measures of barley was what she carried back there. Uh, The best estimate is that's approximately, and we don't know with certainty exactly how much, but it's approximately 60 pounds of grain that she carried back. How many of you have ever lifted a 50-pound sack of grain? Anybody? Or like a 50-pound sack of dirt? 50-pound sack is not easy to carry. Or yeah, 50-pound sack of dog food. Anything, anything that's sack-like and weighing that much, you know it, that, that takes a little bit of strength to be able to do that. And again, like she carried so much back the, the uh, previous time, 
she's strong enough from all of her hard work that she's able to successfully carry it back to town by herself. And what we see also is, of course, the generosity of Boaz, uh, not just for her, but more than enough food for her and for Naomi. Now, in the last few verses, 16 through 18, Ruth reports back. She's arrived back in Bethlehem, arrived back with Naomi. And uh, Naomi has a question for her, and the question is basically, hey, how did it go? So there's two ways you can ask that question. One is, oh, okay, so how did it go? And the other is, hey, how did it go? And I think that's probably how Naomi asked the question. She was super excited. She, She sent her out like in the evening of the night before, and now it's dawn the next day by the time that um, Ruth gets back to Naomi. I'm sure Naomi was super interested to find out whether her counsel had actually turned out fruitful for Ruth and for Boaz, and ultimately even for her. So she asked her, I think, with great excitement, and Ruth tells the story of what happened that night, and then shows her the, the massive amount of grain that Boaz had provided for them. And she had told her even the part about what Boaz had committed to do the next day, uh, which is going to be that day with the nearer kinsman redeemer. And we have one last line from Naomi, which just shows, again, remember at the end of chapter two, I said, Naomi's heart has changed for the better now that she's been back and the Lord has blessed them with the gleaning. Um, she had been in chapter one, Naomi had been a bitter woman because of all that she had lost, bitter toward the Lord. In chapter 2, she regains some of, if not all of the, the healthy heart of confidence and faith and trust in the Lord that she had lost. And now here in chapter 3, she doesn't specifically so much, uh, and I'll read the line, she says in verse uh, 18, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. She doesn't mention the Lord directly here, but she is speaking with great confidence now. She's speaking with confidence, I believe, based upon the Lord's hand in all of these circumstances. She's confident because of the laws that God has revealed to his people of the laws of the kinsman redeemer knowing that there are godly obligations that must be fulfilled. And she's confident because she knows Boaz. She knows he's a good man, a man of high character, a godly man. And if he said, look, I'm going to first offer the redemption option to the nearest kinsman redeemer. So that, that'll turn out well for both of these women if that happens. But it'll turn out even better if he refuses it and then Boaz steps into the role. He's already made the promise that he will redeem if um, it comes to him. And so uh, Naomi is confident and basically uh, is telling Ruth, uh, let's, let's see what unfolds in the events of this next day. All right, so that brings us to the end of our study in chapter 3, and that leads us to the grand finale, really the, the, uh, the wonderful end to the story that's ahead of us in chapter 4. And I'll see you back here, Lord willing, in three weeks uh, after our break. And we'll finish our study in the book of Ruth together.